his mind. And here is your host, Gary Cachulio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Ms. Aida, psychic and author of A List of Demonic Names, also Joseph Simkov, author of How to Kiss the Universe. And this episode is being sponsored by... Tarotbyginger.com, and you can find Ginger Glasser. She's a fantastic tarot reader at tarotbyginger.com. And I love using the tarot just to kind of get different perspectives on things at the very least, if not sometimes answers. Now, without further ado, our guest for today is Eben Alexander, MD, author of Proof of Hep. Proof of Heaven, a neurosurgeon's journey into the afterlife, and he has about three, uh, two, three other books, and one of my favorite topics. Thanks for coming on today. Well, Gary, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I guess first we'll start out with like a little bit about your story and how you... It, one thing, your sound to me sounds very distorted, um, uh, like it's too heavy and maybe needs to be backed mm. off in volume. Something like that. Let me see. How's that? Is that better? Uh, still a little much. Hmm. Sometimes it just clears up in a second, but it actually... There you go. Now we're getting better. better. All right. Fantastic. Um, so what I was starting to say is um, I wanted to get a little bit of a... Give my, I know your background, but my listeners don't. So if you could give them a little background on... Um, you know, your experience in uh, neurosurgery and what happened to you and how it changed your perspective. Yes. Well, um, I spent the first 54 years of my life honing a very kind of conventional scientific worldview. When I say conventional, that means um, materialistic or physicalistic, that only the physical world exists mm -hmm. and that, uh, you know, the brain is somehow a product of... Uh, of uh, of chemical reactions and electron fluxes uh, resulting in what we see is mind. Sorry, my light is misbehaving. But anyway, uh, so that's how I'd spent my life, and that's why what happened next... Recording in progress. Sorry. <laughs> that's why what happened next uh, um, was so surprising. And it occurred in the setting of a severe uh, bacterial meningoencephalitis, so mm. it should have disabled... Um, Sorry about the lighting. Uh, uh, should have disabled any uh, kind of phenomenal conscious experience at all, given uh, the objective data of my uh, of my illness. And how, I was how does how does that happen in the brain? Does it like cut a certain part off? Well, it, it turns out the I mean the thing that to the scientific community mm -hmm. is so valuable about my experience. Uh, was all the uh, clinical data supporting that my neocortex was disabled. Uh, it all came out not only in the book Proof of Heaven, the medical details I provided there, but also uh, in um, a medical case report written by three doctors not involved in my care, but fascinated by my miraculous recovery. And that case report came out in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases in September 2018. 
by Dr. Um, Serbi Khanna, uh, Lauren Moore, and Bruce Grayson. And the two main points they made in the case report is one thing is the evidence based on neurologic exams, based on uh, CT and MRI scans, based on lab values, was that my brain could not have mustered any kind of dream or hallucination, much less the most profound, detailed, meaningful, memorable, and life-changing experience of my entire life. I mean, how did that happen when all of this objective medical data showed that my neocortex, the part that modern neuroscience says is absolutely essential for constructing the details of human conscious awareness, when it was all demonstrably damaged and offline? Even my brainstem was badly damaged, uh, as a witness from those medical records and neurologic exams. And then not only that, but you have the even bigger mystery to some, and that is, given a weak and co deep coma due to severe gram-negative bacterial meningoencephalitis, uh, with my exams, etc., I should have had at best a 2% chance of survival with no chance of actual full recovery. And yet what happened was full recovery over about two months. And uh, in fact, when that case report was submitted to the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases, the peer-reviewing scientists said, well, wait a minute, this case is absurd. It doesn't really line up. Someone this sick with bacterial uh, meningitis uh, doesn't come back to a full recovery. And that's where the uh, three doctors who wrote the report said, well, we think it's because he had a near-death experience. Uh, that he was uh, allowed this kind of miraculous recovery. And the scientific peer reviewers for the journal said, okay, well, that sounds like a reasonable explanation. And the reason is they knew of other cases of near-death experiences that had also resulted in apparent miraculous healing. Uh, and that's where I think uh, these cases should be of interest to all of us because uh, they show a pathway forward that involves coming into wholeness and healing that involves expanding our notion of self into this kind of higher spiritual self that's connected. When I use the word spiritual, for me, it's only two, uh, two ingredients to that. Um, one ingredient in spirituality is mm -hmm. a sense that we're all connected through mind, which, of course, is very apparent to near-death experiencers. That's why in a life review, you reconnect with all those souls that you had been involved with. And a life review is not a simple remembering of events as much as a reliving of events. And uh, that's where I think we start to get the real power of these journeys uh, and how they connect us to a much higher and grander aspect of self that in many ways I would say is interconnected with all those other uh, aspects of self so that we're really sharing one mind. The other uh, top ingredient or main ingredient of spirituality uh, beyond the sense of connection is a sense of meaning and purpose in our existence. And I think those two alone give us a full-born uh, kind of sense of spirituality and connectedness that allows us to better view, you know, mind and phenomenal experience and brain and how they're all kind of contained within this bigger model of who we truly are that goes far beyond the little ego self, uh, you know, that I might have limited myself to before my coma. Before the, and after, now after, like before the coma, you looked at the brain as just a physical, electronic impulse, maybe like hard drive type of hardware that's in, installed in us. And then afterwards, you're like, I'm, I was still conscious despite having not the ability to be conscious with a physical brain. So, right. 
How do you explain that? And like, how did you even come to the terms, like terms with that? Like when you first came out of that coma and started talking about this, was there any struggle between, you know, your physical view and then your view afterwards? There was a tremendous struggle, but the interesting thing is there's one atypical feature of my near-death experience that is absolutely essential to understanding it. And it's unusual. Most people don't have this, but it was amnesia. I had no memory of my life before coma. Hmm. Uh, you know, and of course, in the first few weeks after awakening, when most of my neurosurgical neuroscience knowledge was still absent, you know, and I was basically coming back into this world uh, new and afresh in my kind of learning, um, my doctors had told me, you know, when I tried to share my near-death experience with them, the spiritual quality of it, they just pat me on the back and said, uh, well, your brain was soaking in pus. We don't have any idea how you're even coming back to us now. So that was the setting I was in. And also remember that when I first woke up in the ICU room, my brain was still so savaged by this meningitis that I did not even recognize my loved ones at the bedside. My mother, my sisters, my sons. I had no idea who these beings were. So this was a really deep, profound, you know, brain-wrecking uh, experience. And yet... Uh, my mind, my, uh, you know, kind of phenomenal awareness and, and sense of self emerged dramatically over the next two months as all of those memories returned. And in fact, as we explain in our third book, you know, Proof of Heaven, uh, from my point of view, is a book that is more a question mark than anything else. It says, okay, these extraordinary experiences can happen. They defy the materialist model, but how do we explain them? Uh, and then in the third book that I wrote, and that was co-written with my life partner, Karen Newell, mm -hmm. that book is called Living in a Mindful Universe. And in that book, we really go the distance to unite the science and spirituality and tell this whole much bigger story of my recovery, especially over the last 14 years of working with scientists around the world uh, to try and come to a deeper understanding of consciousness. Uh, but to me, it was all a tremendous gift. And so this is uh, really just a sharing with the world of extraordinary lessons. And the interesting thing is these are all in parallel with the f leading edges of modern science of consciousness studies about the brain-mind connection. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, all of this is very important to the world because it is shifting our understanding of the nature of who we are, what our purpose here is, and how, in fact, materialist uh, thinking, which has been pr disproven in modern science with quantum physics and uh, modern study of consciousness, uh, that materialism leads us to a false sense of separation from each other. Mm. Whereas when you honor near-death experiences with the scientific rigor and truth that they bring to us, you start to realize they're indicating we're all truly in this together. That, the life review that is described in a quarter to a half of near-death experiences is nothing more than the golden rule, you know, treat others as you would like to be treated, written into the very fabric of the universe. And wow. I think that's a very important point. It's because in the life review, you experience the main events of your life that still harbor lessons to be taught and learned, uh, and you experience that uh, but from the perspective of others, the emotional reality of those who are affected by your thoughts and, and actions. So if you're busy handing out pain and suffering to others mm -hmm. your whole life, your life review is not going to be very pleasant because you're going to be on the receiving end of every bit of that uh, kind of uh, greed and pain and suffering that you handed out. And that's what nudges us gently over multiple lifetimes 
more towards a sense of loving and caring and kindness and uh, compassion and taking care of each other and being all-inclusive in that endeavor. That's where I think this modern science of consciousness is so crucial for our world today, to get rid of this crazy egotistical uh, kind of sense of self as most important and a sense of the higher good for all involved is the true goal of our existence. And that's where I believe NDEs can be very informative and especially uh, when they're illuminated through the light of modern scientific rigor and investigation. And there are hundreds of scientists around the world who have been studying um, all of this, the nature of consciousness, the brain-mind connection. Uh, and in fact, for your viewers, if they're not aware, there's a gold mine of information that has come from those scientists in the last year. Um, Robert Bigelow, who's an aerospace engineer in Las Vegas, hosted yep. a contest. The question was, what's the best scientific evidence for uh, survival of conscious awareness beyond permanent bodily death? Contest was held in 2021 globally. They received uh, more than a thousand applications. Then they demanded that it, you demonstrate at least five years of experience scientifically investigating the afterlife question. And then they received 204 essays. Uh, and of those, they originally were going to give out three monetary prizes. The essays were of such high quality, they gave out 29 monetary prizes. And all those essays are available for free to the public right now at BigelowInstitute.org. And we've gone beyond the point where this is a question of, is this all scientifically valid or not? These essays prove beyond any uh, reasonable doubt whatsoever that the afterlife is a very real uh, concept and phenomenon. And not only that, but reincarnation is kind of a critical uh, understanding of human experience. Uh, the evidence is giant, uh, and that is the part that we really need to pay attention to. So uh, our understanding of consciousness from a scientific sense demands a much bigger theater of operations than the bleak and paltry fiction of materialist science that tries to pretend this is, you know, conscious awareness is only the result of chemical reactions, electron fluxes in the brain, nothing more, and that when the brain dies, that's the end of conscious awareness. Well, uh, guess what? It actually is a liberation of conscious awareness to a much higher level. That's what near-death experiencers have been reporting going back thousands of years, is a far grander awareness and kind of overlap of that mental space with fellow beings, both fellow beings still incarnate and beings that have left the physical plane. So uh, we really just need to look at these uh, empirical cases of human experience with a bigger mindset as to what is necessary for the explanation. Hmm. So if I interpret this correctly, we're basically living all interconnected within the consciousness of something else that's conscious. Well, I would say that consciousness, this unified one mind, mm -hmm. is the thing that exists. That is the starting point, and that it is able to project this apparent uh, physical reality. But remember, it also can project in a fashion that seems even more real than this world of the higher levels of spiritual realms. I mean, it's very common for people who've had these experiences to say that realm is of uh, you know, more real than this one. It's more filled with information. It's more memorable, detailed. Uh, it seems more relevant to our lives. Um, and in fact, when I came back from my journey, I realized that this realm is the murky, dark realm 
uh, that seems kind of dreamlike compared to that realm, which is far more powerful, impactful, meaningful. That's why these events change people's lives so dramatically. Uh, and from my point viewpoint as a scientist, what's really necessary to study them is a beautiful way to kind of duplicate the mental state or, or allow us to approach it. And, you know, many people uh, hear that statement and they think mm, maybe psychedelic substances, you know, plant medicines, entheogens mm -hmm. is the word I like to use. And although I'm very happy for the current research going on in the world of psychedelics, I will say that having uh, tried both, that is, I've had a profound natural NDE. And I also, because people said that my experience sounded way too much like a, a dimethyltryptamine experience. Sam Harris mm -hmm. kind of accused me of having a DMT experience and confusing it with an NDE. Uh, but in fact, I can tell you that the psychedelic, uh, and from my experience, that it involves a use of a dose uh, escalation use of 5-methoxy uh, DMT. And to me, that experience uh, with the DMT basically gave me the tiniest little glimpse through a keyhole compared to the panoramic penthouse view I had of those realms during my near-death experience. So I would say, no, psychedelics, even though they are glimpsing into the same territory, they are certainly not a ticket to the grand mm -hmm. kind of global life-changing experience uh, that we can have naturally. From my point of view, meditation is the way to approach that. And that's a big topic in the book that Karen and I wrote, Living in a Mindful Universe, we talk a lot about using meditation and very specifically a form of differential frequency brainwave entrainment uh, to enhance meditative states. And that's uh, sacred acoustics. So if people want to learn more about that meditative technique, go to sacredacoustics.com. Mm -hmm. Full disclosure here is that Karen Newell is my life partner. Uh, now, I'm one of the biggest fans of sacred acoustics on Earth. In fact, I was the one who encouraged Karen to join her business partner and sound engineer, Kevin Cossey, uh, you know, 11 years ago to form Sacred Acoustics because I knew they were building these tones. And to me, they were the most powerful differential frequency brainwave entrainment I had yet tried. And, uh, you know, I knew that was a deep pathway into meditative uh, rigor and experience. And that's why I'm such a big proponent of it. But uh, people can learn more at sacredacoustics.com. We certainly talk about it a lot in our book, uh, Living in a Mind for Universe. Uh, but really, it's it's this whole business of finding that we are much grander than just our, our, our little body living in a parent here and now with a sense of self. And that's what we can learn through meditation. So what was it that you experienced when you were in the afterlife? How did it, well, what was it you, know, you experienced? How did it seem even more real than this? Well, what happened, it all started in what I call the earthworm's eye view. And remember, I was amnesic. I had no mm -hmm. memories of humans, earth, this universe. Everything was gone. Empty slate, which I think was absolutely crucial for some of the lessons I was to learn. But in that earthworm eye view, I was simply a speck of awareness. And I witnessed uh, kind of this murky, bubbly uh, uh, kind of, it was like being in dirty mud. Uh, and I've had this sense of tactile sensation of roots or blood vessels around me. Uh, it seemed to go forever. I'm sure I didn't have much memory of, you know, a moment now to now to now. So it just seemed to be the existence I'd always known. People would often hear, hear me talk about this early on and say, that sounds like hell or purgatory. Well, I would think hell would be at least a little bit interactive. And this earthworm I view was nothing of the sort. 
But I was rescued from that experience mm-hmm. by the slowly spinning white light that came packaged with a perfect musical melody. And the notes of the melody were important because they helped me to conjure up that light portal again and again through this journey because I would spontaneously tumble down from the higher spiritual levels into this earthworm I view and would always have to rescue myself by remembering those musical notes. But the first time it happened, I remember that slowly spinning white light. It came towards me and it opened up like a rip in the fabric of that ugly earthworm I view and led up into this brilliant ultra real gateway valley. And that's where I first experienced that way too real to be real sensation was in that gateway valley. And I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly way. And this is a a butterfly that could have been a magic carpet. It could have been any number of things. But the word I used was butterfly when I came back to this world because I envisioned uh, in this experience these vast looping and spiraling clouds of butterflies, colors beyond the rainbow. And we were all swirling above this meadow. Uh, I had no body awareness at any point. So I did not picture this body sitting on a butterfly wing, but that speck of awareness was there witnessing every bit of it. And uh, I witnessed thousands of beings in the meadow below. There was this gorgeous meadow. It was absolutely lush with life, no sign of any death or decay. There were sparkling waterfalls into crystal blue pools and uh, lots of verdant green and flowers, blossoms, buds on trees, all opening in these dynamic uh, tactile patterns of just pure beauty. And you experienced all of it. This is one of the reasons you hear these uh, these kind of things are uh, ineffable. You cannot put them in the words. Part of the problem is we're no longer in that realm seeing things filtered through the eyes, filtered through the ears, you know, filtered through the brain, which all those filtering mechanisms limit conscious awareness down to this tiny trickle. Well, in those realms, it's wham. It's like drinking consciousness from a fire hose. And you're getting it in all channels, including channels beyond what we're used to. Uh, it's often what I call knowledge through becoming. You become huge swathes of the scene in terms of understanding. I mean, in, in, in essence, that's exactly what a life review is. You become the other beings to feel their emotional uh, reaction to your, um, your actions and even your thoughts. Uh, and so in that in that beautiful realm, I was experiencing all of this by becoming huge swathes of it. Now, it turns out I wasn't alone on that butterfly wing. As those who've read the book Proof of Heaven will recall, there was a beautiful guardian angel or spiritual guide. And she looked at me with a look of pure love. And she never said a word. She never had to because her deep emotional awareness came into me as pure conceptual emotional flow. And that awareness, as she looked at me with this beautiful smile, um, uh, you know, sparkling blue eyes, high cheekbones, broad forehead, soft brown hair, and this simple, uh, very colorful garb, just like all the beings dancing down below us in the valley. And she looked at me with that look of pure love and her awareness came into my mind. And I think this was the message I was essentially to bring back to the world at large. You are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You are deeply cared for. And the other statement that came at that time uh, that I wish I'd explain better in proof of heaven, you can do no wrong. Because when I heard that, I already knew that because of the light and love in in that environment, that all of my actions, just like in anybody's life review, would be measured against that pure love, that unconditional love of that God force in that realm. So when I said you can do no wrong, what I meant was, 
you will always be nudged towards that oneness with the divine, which involves love, kindness, and compassion. So if we do otherwise, uh, we and we have free will, we have the choice to do otherwise, but that always leads us to a more arduous and difficult pathway because against that backdrop of pure unconditional love in, in the core realm and in that gateway valley, uh, you know, anything less than that seems, uh, seems going the wrong way, essentially. So uh, that was a beautiful part of the lesson, that, that gift, that, that guardian angel on the butterfly wing. But it turns out this was only a stepping stone, as I called it, the gateway valley. And I remember seeing all of four-dimensional space-time collapsing down. All of what uh, I was seeing there, that spiritual realm. Now, their uh, causality is linked along what's called what I call deep time or meta time. Very important concept because to experience a life review in that setting is to relive the events of your life that can still harbor residual lessons for teaching, and that's a very important point because you're not just remembering, uh, but you're reaccessing and reliving those events. So, in other words, in that realm, you're completely lifted out of our notion of space-time, moving from past to present to future here in the spiritual realm, and that concept of deep time is crucial because it reveals how our sense of time in this world uh, is in many ways kind of distorted and altered to allow this illusion Mm -hmm. of a a kind of a linear narrative to unfold. But in fact, from that higher perspective, we can see our lives in much greater context. And just as in the world of transpersonal psychology today, which was, you know, from the work of Carl Jung and then Stan Groff, uh, uh, Michael Weiss, uh, and, and other, uh, I'm sorry, Michael Newton and Brian Weiss, uh, who have done incredible work in, in that field, you find that to best understand the events of this life is to realize that our soul is bigger than this and has been here in other lifetimes. And to acknowledge the, the events of those lifetimes helps us to understand how better to deal with things in this lifetime. So it's that bigger approach that goes beyond just self and a physical body in this incarnation that allows us to come into real healing. And it's that bigger view that I think has been so important in a, in a therapeutic uh, uh, realm, but also it helps us to understand more deeply the kind of scientific and philosophical implications of this one mind, of this objective idealism, which is really the philosophical position that we argue in our book. But for in my journey, that Gateway Valley led up into what I call the core. So after I'd seen all this temporal collapse, not only of our linear time in the material realm, but also of that deep meta time in the spiritual realm, all of that collapsing down, I was then out in the core realm, which was a a complete resolution of all paradox, all dualities, oneness with the divine. Everything collapses to one sense of the source of conscious awareness being that very God force that one discovers at the core of the universe. So one of the things, you know, that, that has come up a lot when I've done these interviews is a lot of people have different experiences when they have near-death experiences. Like, not everybody has to experience the same thing. And I've heard it broken down into three different categories, which is uh, white light, black light, and clear light. Um, and as I was mentioning earlier before the podcast, I've had my own experience. And my experience, I guess, falls into the black light experience. Mine was during... What happened to me was I had a massive epileptic seizure when I was at work, and I was out for about a half hour. During that time that I was out, I remember being in this black 
void. It was just black and like surrounding me was like color and sound. It was just sort of swirling around me. It's really tough to describe it in actual human words. I don't know if I have the vocabulary to describe what the experience was, but I was completely at peace. There was no pain. There was no suffering. There was no loneliness. There was none of that. It was just complete and absolute peace. And I was okay. I wasn't afraid or anything. And, um, you know, and I just sat there and I was completely aware. I was just like, like it was in the middle of this and looked around like, it wasn't even like a physical return. I could see around me without like turning, you know, and, and I was just like, wow, this is really, I'm, I'm aware, but I'm not, you know, on earth, you know, and I didn't know if it was a dream or if I had actually left my body and went somewhere else. And then, you know, eventually, like a half hour later, I heard my ex-wife yelling at me, come back, come back, come back. And I woke up by then and I was in an ambulance. And I was a little frustrated that I actually had to come out of that state, <laughs> honestly. I've never been, I mean, I've never been the same since, actually. And um, what would you categorize that kind of experience? Like, is that actual near-death experience or is that my brain just firing because I was having a seizure? No, I would say that you were approach. You had been liberated from the shackles of the brain and body in the here now sense of self uh, that we, you were so used to. I mean, in fact, all of us go through it at night in dreaming. You know, we're liberated from this illusion of here now and sense of self. And I think you're describing a beautiful uh, kind of connection with the one mind. That that sense of bliss of you know you were actually elevated out of time, out of temporal flow. Yeah. And uh, and also that sense of oneness, that sense of kind of connection and comfort. That's one of the, the real hallmarks of this is you feel home. This feels comfortable. It doesn't feel foreboding at all. In fact, this material world to me felt more foreign than mm-hmm. that beautiful existence that you're describing. And this is the kind of thing when I hear from other experiencers, to me, this is what resonates so deeply. That sense of oneness, that sense of being home, that sense of of love and peace, you know, just eternal, unbelievably comforting peace. Uh, And that's kind of the deep hallmark. Now, the other very common ingredient across all cultures going back thousands of years is that in that state, it's not at all uncommon to encounter the souls of loved ones who have left the physical plane. I mean, that's that's where that happens is in the realm you're describing of this pure peace and and love. Uh, I mean, to me, a, a lot of what you're describing sounds like it it correlates more with kind of my core realm. You know, the deepest mm-hmm. aspect of my journey was that core that I described that I described it as dazzling darkness. It was an infinite uh, inky blackness, but it was filled to overflowing with this divine wholesome, healing love of the creative force, you know, and I don't want to use the label God uh, because God is a little buzzword down here. In fact, in the book Proof of Heaven, uh, when I came back from all this and was writing it all up and trying to make sense of it, to me, the word God was a puny word with a lot of baggage. And I knew Mm -hmm. by then it doesn't matter if you want to call that God, Allah, Brahman, Vishnu, Jehovah, Yahweh, Great Spirit. I don't care what words you use. The words pretend that we have some command or uh, deeper understanding over that presence, that power, and we don't. It's actually at the origin of our very conscious awareness. Uh, but that's where 
I think uh, awakening to this bigger truth is very important. And that's where I love stories like yours, uh, because they help me to kind of identify that emotional core, uh, you know, of the experience itself that people have been through, because the words often don't do justice. And I don't expect people to use words like butterfly to me right. to tell me they had the same experience I had. Uh, it's much more about that sense of connection, of love, of 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 kind of uh, escape from the the illusion of of this here now sense of self, all of that that clu- that is a clue to me about the commonality of these experiences, and the more and more of them you study, uh, the more you realize that these commonalities are very powerful. They kind mm-hmm. of link these things together and suggest the reality uh, of a realm that is absolutely concrete and real, uh, but it's uh, it's just more fundamental and more important than this realm. But it's one that uh, we generally don't necessarily approach, except when we die. Uh, we get into the same level, as I mentioned earlier, with uh, psychedelics, with dream space, lucid dreaming, things like that. They're all kind of addressing that same spiritual space. But the NDE is the most profound way to engage with it. And that's why, to me, it's kind of fascinating that many NDEs are also associated with miraculous healing. Mm-hmm. So it's not just my story. Uh, as was amplified by that medical case report in Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease, September 2018, but also stories like Anita Morjani, who wrote the book Dying to Be Me, and the fact that she was able to heal her advanced stage 4 lymphoma. Or Dr. Mary C. Neal, who had an over 30-minute warm water drowning in Chile while uh, kayaking back in the late 1990s, had a profound near-death experience. And they brought her to the surface dead, they resuscitated her, and she ended up making a, a full recovery over you know many many months. Uh, but anyway, she had a full recovery and came back to this world, uh, giving talks about her NDE, just like Anita and I do. And it's because the healing is probably the most important thing to pe- for people to understand about all of this. The world needs healing. Each and every one of us needs healing, just from our separation from source at birth. And so this is all about coming more into wholeness and deeper understanding of who we are and how interconnected we are and how we have this shared meaning and purpose to grow towards that oneness with the divine through showing kindness, compassion, mercy, acceptance, you know, for ourselves and for others. Um, I, I knew when I came back to this world that many of the world's problems were not because we didn't love our enemy or love our neighbors as we should. It's that we didn't even love ourselves as the divine and sacred eternal beings that we are. And the more we learn that and bring that into our knowing and share that in our interactions with others, uh, the more this world will heal. So you think that the reason that we have these experiences and come back is to heal and to heal ourselves and help heal the world? Absolutely. I think they are there to just instruct us more fully as to who we are and why we are here. And I think that the the why we're here is we can glimpse uh, kind of where that is headed. But I would say it's a capstone to at least 5,000 years of human destiny. So I'm talking about a tremendous paradigm shift, a tremendous revolution in our understanding of self and the nature of this universe that is unfolding right now through the very science of consciousness and, and the deep studies that prove the reality not only of near-death experiences, but of those thousands of stories of past life memories in children suggestive of reincarnation. 
And for your listeners, they can go to uvadops.org and learn a tremendous amount more about that from a scientific group that's been rigorously studying uh, not only past life memories in children suggested for reincarnation, of which they have more than 2,500 cases they've studied over the last six decades. Yeah, 1,700 of those cases they call solved. Mm-hmm. That is, that they actually found the previous person. But they also study near-death experiences through Bruce Grayson. They also study all manner of non-local consciousness through parapsychology with Ed Kelly, who is a world leader uh, in that scientific field of the study of non-local consciousness. But all of this just shows us, and th- this refers back to those BigelowInstitute.org papers that I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, this is no longer a question of whether science supports this. Science almost demands the reality uh, of the spiritual realm. It's through quantum physics that we realize that the world around us is very much a product of the mental space mm-hmm. and not simply existing as a physical space that is going by mechanistic laws. So do you think that um, science and spirituality are, are merging together? Like, in my opinion, my own opinion, like looking back at some of the older cultures, you know, they seem to have recognized what we're just learning again. And they had sort of combined their science and spirituality together for healing, you know, like shamanism and, you know, whatever you want to call it in different cultures. And now it seems like we're kind of returning to that. Well, I would say you're absolutely right. It's like that old T.S. Eliot poem. I can't remember which one it is, but he says, at the end of it all, the end of this long journey, we get to the place and we find out it was where we started. So in many ways, you know, this deep wisdom that we seem to be coming into in the modern uh, kind of scientific study of consciousness and the nature of reality is taking us right back to some profound, deep truths of unity, of mind, of connectedness, they go back thousands of years in our spiritual traditions, both East and West. So to me, it's kind of fascinating that uh, that all this is as it is. And, and Karen, my partner, who is a great student of ancient wisdom, uh, tells me that we've been here before, that humanity kind of uh, oscillates through these cycles of knowledge, and that we then have uh, periods where we lose knowledge, uh, but that we have been to this great wisdom before. And as you point out, uh, spiritual traditions uh, have referred to this uh, sense of oneness and connectedness going back to time immemorial. And and this is what we're learning now. And I would say the quantum informed, mm-hmm. that is a fully quantum intelligent uh, interpretation of consciousness and the brain, brain-mind connection is what fully allows for this richer uh, and more profound understanding of the nature of our existence. Uh, it's it's actually demanded. I mean, the, the alternative... From a viewpoint of quantum physics, if you don't want to acknowledge the reality of objective idealism, that is this one mind and its influence on the world at large through individual sentient beings, uh, the interpretation is infinite parallel universes unfolding at every instant in space-time where a sentient being interacts with the environment. That doesn't seem to be the world we live in, the many worlds interpretation of Hugh Everett, but that's how many physicists well, they'll go to that length uh, to try and explain the findings of quantum physics if they are unable to grok the power of objective idealism and seeing the brain as a filter that allows primordial consciousness, that primordial mind, to manifest uh, through uh, sentient beings. 
Now, we have this apparent dissociation of consciousness, so we each run around thinking our mental space is our own, but in fact, near-death experiences belie that as uh, untrue. Uh, that's why when somebody has a near-death experience, they can experience the mental contents of people around them, you know, of physicians, nurses in the room that might be working on them, other people, say, in a hospital environment that might be out there if they're, uh, you know, deep in coma trying to die in a given institution, but their conscious awareness overlaps with others around them. Uh, and not only that, it overlaps with loved ones who have already left the physical plane. So it's extraordinary. This idea of objective idealism starts to explain so much more when we realize the power of that mental realm of the universe, that top-down causal layer that influences uh, unfolding reality. And quantum physics and entanglement are kind of the clue to us that that one mind is truly where it all originates. All of our knowledge of this universe originates in that one mind, mm -hmm. in a mental space. It's not limited and tied down to the physical world. Although there is some way that the brain serves as a filter that filters in that primordial consciousness, in this apparent, apparent dissociated state. But, you know, the reality of things like telepathy, a precognition that we can know the future a few seconds in advance, even uh, if that future has not been determined, say in a, uh, a psychological experiment like Daryl Bim did, uh, where, uh, and he called Feeling the Future, that was the name of his paper on this. Uh, but Daryl Bim showed that uh, in a computer model that uses very uh, horrific, disturbing images, or very uh, uh, safe and comforting images, or very neutral images, so three categories, picked by a random number generator. And what Daryl Bim showed is that somehow the test subject seems to know statistically uh, significantly, seems to know which image is coming up next, even before the random number generator has selected the image. Mm -hmm. So if you're following this discussion, you realize that is a shocker. It really kind of gets at a materialist science a notion of causality and yet the meta-analysis of Daryl Bim's work comes up fully supporting the reality of precognition. Mm -hmm. uh, Dean Radin at Institute of Noetic Sciences have sh has shown pre-sentiment. That is, that our autonomic nervous system can know the future a few seconds in advance. So all of these are extraordinary findings that demand a deeper explanation of our notions of causality, our notions of free will, uh, our notions of our ability to uh, interact with the emerging uh, reality we see in this physical world. All of that is, uh, you know, subject to much deeper and richer understanding when we realize the power that we have beyond what materialist science would claim that we have. Wow. So do you ever wonder, if, if we are all one consciousness, or well, you ever wonder where the one consciousness or singularity began and why? Well, all I can tell you is that the what we see is the Big Bang, you know, 13.7 billion years ago, the origin of this observable universe. Uh, we don't know if that was the origin of all the universe. We don't mm. even know if the Big Bang really happened. True. I mean, theory. the evidence, uh, you know, Hubble's uh, analysis of the galaxies uh, flying apart, all of that led us to this notion of the Big Bang, the primordial atom, as it was called back in the early 20th century. Uh, and yet it could be a, our understanding of time and of space uh, is so limited that we uh, don't really get the bigger picture of all this. But 
the deeper realities, all of that is contained within this one mind. So in other words, if in fact we're looking at an observable universe 13.7 billion years old, that is within the one mind, created by the one mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we just have to expand our, our, our kind of vision of understanding uh, to the perspective of that one kind of godlike force of, of mind uh, that basically is a layer of information integration and assimilation that sentient beings have access to. And I think that's the important uh, kind of step to get. Uh, but this notion of filter theory with the brain serving as a filter for that primordial unified mm-hmm. mind is gaining a tremendous uh, ground. And filter theory itself is not a new idea. Filter theory was there at the turn of the 19th to 20th century uh, with uh, William J- uh, William James, uh, head of, a, of psychology in America, Harvard professor of psychology, who realized you needed something more to explain the workings of the brain and of the body uh, than just this notion that the brain was doing it all. There, this kind of spiritual realm was very obvious to him in his work. But other investigators around that time, too, argued for filter theory and this kind of notion of one mind. Henri Bergson in France, F.C.S. Schiller, um, uh, Frederick Meyer, and, uh, you know, the filter theory has a very respectable history uh, going back, and I think it's making a huge resurgence now as uh, objective idealism is proving to be the best model for understanding the world at large. That is, the top-down causal power of that mental layer of the universe. And this is something um, Bernardo Castro, Castro with a K, has written a lot about. He's an endorser of our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, and we certainly endorse a lot of his work, including his uh, recent book, The Idea of the World. Uh, and I would encourage people to go to bernardocastrop.com to learn more about that. But he's done a, a world of good to help tie uh, quantum physics in the modern era mm-hmm to this notion of objective idealism. And, of course, we do the same thing in a very multidisciplinary fashion fashion in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. We bring together the hard problem of consciousness uh, in neuroscience, the philosophy of mind, the binding problem, the apparent unity of consciousness within the individual, and all that uh, quantum physics has to offer about superposition and especially entanglement indicative of that the reality of that mental layer of the universe as ultimately the primary cause of all that unfolds in this world. Um, and then, of course, all the evidence for non-local consciousness in, from the world of parapsychology, whether it's uh, telepathy, remote viewing, out-of-body experiences, precognition, pre-sentiment, um, uh, psychokinesis, past life memories in children suggested for reincarnation. I mean, all of this evidence of non-local consciousness screams to us that objective idealism is the best explanatory model. And that returns free will and our ability to influence the emerging reality right back to human beings. Because remember that materialist science, conventional materialist science, would scoff at you if you claim to have any sense of free will. Because they think it's all just chemical reactions, electron fluxes in the brain, nothing more. Uh, and that's where they're quite obviously just plain old wrong. And that's where objective idealism is a much more uh, kind of valid solution to our understanding of the nature of reality. And by returning free will to individual sentient beings, that gives us great power uh, in moving forward in uh, kind of shifting uh, our world to the world of our dreams and ideals. Is objective realism, um, 
the same or similar to the idea that the brain is a receiver, an antenna, rather than a storage device or a learning or, or more less of a computing device, but more of a receiver. And what I mean, we're receiving is the, actually the filtered version of reality. Well, you use the the you asked me about objective realism, and I think you meant objective idealism. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, idealism. Okay, good. So objective idealism, I can absolutely deal with. Objective realism, in many ways, is kind of a an oxymoron. That uh, objective idealism is absolutely as you say. It's uh, uh, opens the door to an understanding of that filter theory and the brain serving as a filter mm-hmm. uh, of consciousness and not the producer of it. And and by making that very simple uh, kind of step in adjusting your understanding of the nature of reality, it enables a far grander uh, interpretation of all the empirical evidence. You know, materialist science basically has to say in things like NDEs are just hallucinations, that they're of no importance to anybody. Try and tell that to somebody who's been through it, like me. <laughs> you know, it's it's the most important event of my existence. So how can I just deny it or ignore it? And of course, for me, uh, if I try to ignite or d- ignore it, deny it, um, I then have to explain how did I have this recovery that completely defies a medical precedent, uh, as is reported in that medical case report. Mm-hmm. How in the world do I explain that miraculous recovery um, if I'm just saying, well, I guess sometimes you get lucky. Well, no, that's not the way to explain something that extraordinary. As most doctors and medical scientists uh, uh, who study my medical record will come to conclude. Uh, so, but it's it really opens the door to tremendous possibilities by understanding how deeply interconnected we all are, and that's why you realize, uh, as I said earlier, near-death experiencers, the life review. If you hurt another, you're hurting yourself. Golden rule. Treat others as you would like to be treated. It's written into the very fabric of the universe through life reviews and through these kind of experiences. And this is where we can help the world because so much of the travesty uh, of the modern world, the war in Ukraine, you know, Putin's uh, inexplicable aggression to try and destroy another uh, country, uh, the violence we see in our streets, the uh, political polarization, all of this kind of uh, friction and, and conflict is fired because of this false sense of separation that comes from materialist thought. And I would bundle, uh, you know, that false sense of separation and materialist thought of the 20th century with a, a kind of a, a warped uh, interpretation of Darwinian evolution. Because at the same time that uh, our thinking in quantum physics was evolving uh, in the 20th century, uh, there were these debates about, uh, you know, Darwinian evolution, all that. Um, and it become clear to me that we're evolving, but in a much grander sense than just Darwinian evolution. And I gained that through reading Pierre Taylor de Chardin's book, The Phenomenon of Man. He wrote that in the mid-20th century. He was a French Jesuit priest, so he was very spiritual. He was also a paleontologist. Mm-hmm. So he was a scientist very used to, you know, billion-year timelines. And he came up with the idea that evolution was indeed happening, but it was far grander than just little uh, Darwinian evolution on Earth and that all of consciousness throughout the cosmos was evolving. And that's what I came to realize in my own journey was absolutely true. And that's what we're all contributing to in this process of growth. That's always been one of my ideas, or not even my ideas, I mean, because it came from like things like the Kabbalah and stuff like that, is that this consciousness somehow says, hmm, I'm conscious. 
But why am I conscious? So the only way you can understand why it is conscious is to run through every possible probability of why is consciousness conscious. And we are one of the results of one of those probabilities of it trying to come to some type of resolve or understanding of why it exists. Well, that, that's, the, that's the big question right there. It's kind of why does anything exist? Because yeah. in fact, what I would say in that analysis, what we find is the thing that exists primarily is conscious awareness. In many ways, the universe is uh, aware of its own existence, and it is the thing that is evolving, is the universe at large. And uh, so I think that's what we kind of come to realize in these journeys. You know, in any uh, kind of discussion of the nature of reality, you're always going to run into this wall of, uh, you know, defining a, 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 a primitive, an ontological primitive, as it's called. And that is the thing that exists fundamentally. Now, before my coma as a conventional materialist neuroscientist, my belief was that the physical universe is the ontological primitive that we somehow have to explain all of existence out of that. But that's mm -hmm. where you run into that problem because the evidence from quantum physics leads you away from that simple conclusion where you have to come to the infinite parallel universes mm -hmm. if you want to avoid the word consciousness and conscious awareness. Uh, there's a beautiful uh, essay in the scientific journal Nature. It was published in 2005. It was by Richard Kahn Henry. And he was... I think head of physics at uh, Johns Hopkins University at the time, and this one-page essay is entitled Mental Universe. And he makes it very clear that from the viewpoint of evolving quantum physics in the modern era, the, the mental universe is the reality that is there. And he said the universe is not physical. It's primarily mental and spiritual. So enjoy. And uh, I agree with him 100% on that. But that's where... Uh, you know, the science of consciousness has absolutely led us into this deeper understanding of quantum physics. Now, there's some quantum physicists out there who still haven't read the memo. They still <laughs> think if you just focus on the math, you focus on the uh -huh. physics, on the entanglement, on the superpositions, uh, that somehow you explain it all with that infinite parallel universe madness, and then you're, you're good. Well, wrong, uh, because that really doesn't even begin to explain anything about human experience. That's why the work of Kastrup, Bernardo Kastrup, our work, uh, in fact, there's several resources. If you read that, uh, that those Bigelow essays, the second place winner by Dr. Pim Van Lommel, a Dutch cardiologist, excellent scientific essay, I highly recommend. But the end of his essay, he's making the conclusion that uh, the one mind is true, you know, that we are sharing the one mind. And he lists as scientific resources for that argument, he lists a paper from Bernardo Kastrup that came out in Journal of Consciousness Studies, I believe, in, in, in 2018. That paper was called uh, The Universe in Consciousness. Uh, then also he listed uh, Steve Taylor's book, Spiritual Science. Uh, he listed Larry Dossey's beautiful book, One Mind, uh, which is what really first got me totally going into this notion of the one mind. And he also lists our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. Those four scientific resources are what Dr. Pim Van Lama lists as your main go-to resources for explaining this one-mind hypothesis. The brain is a filter and objective idealism. And I would also suggest that Pim Van Lama's own book, Consciousness Beyond Life, uh, should be a fifth major resource for that thinking. 
because in that book, he makes a very strong argument that leads you towards this notion of the one mind. I agree. I mean, obviously, you see the Buddha behind me. He was all about one mind. (laughs) So, yeah, I I think that that there's no doubt that everything is connected. I I think that we're definitely part of a larger consciousness. I have no no, absolutely no explanation of why or how it's happening. Um, But it is fascinating. One thing I I would add uh, concerning uh, the Buddha and the Mm -hmm. one mind and... uh, idealism is, I would say, and this is something that uh, we argued, uh, especially in the first anniversary addition to Proof of Heaven. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's an afterword there where we make a big discussion of all this. And we talk about how uh, it's important, especially with all this big discussion of reincarnation, because the reincarnation data is some of the strongest data there about kind of this one mind and pay attention to this bigger uh, concept. Uh, But the, the important notion is that I think from the Buddhist perspective, some people interpret that as that, you know, you've got this wheel, the mechanistic wheel of reincarnation, and the goal is to get off the wheel, you know, nirvana. Oh, yeah, the, the wheel of samsara, yeah. Uh, right, but uh, I would say this interpretation mm-hmm. that I'm coming from, that Karen and I often discuss, and that I think the science of consciousness now supports much more strongly, especially because of its affinity for uh, near-death experiences and the reality that they present to us, uh, is really a process of grace, a process of transformation and evolution. So it's not, oh man, get off the wheel of, of uh, reincarnation because mm-hmm. that's just mechanistic bummer. Well, no, it's all about growth towards oneness with the divine. It's a much more optimistic and empowering kind of vision of this objective idealism, brain as a filter, multiple incarnations, because it's all leading somewhere. It's all going towards that beautiful golden center that I saw in my Ender's Net version of reincarnation and life reviews Mm -hmm. deep in my own coma. Because of my amnesia, I could not have an Evan Alexander life review. But I did experience uh, life reviews and reincarnation in two very powerful uh, presentations, what I call the flying fish vision, and then one later uh, called uh, the Ender's Net vision. And those both occurred in the core realm of my journeys. Uh, but to me, it, it, it really opens the door wide to a much more optimistic uh, understanding of evolution of human uh, kind of integration with our existence and understanding of our meaning and purpose in life and one that leads towards a future of wholeness and healing. Right. Yeah, I've read about the Indra's net idea where everything is sort of like a reflection of the same thing. Is that what it was, basically? But is this all connected by that reflection? So it's all these different things, like a bunch of mirrors all reflecting each other? It is, and they're all basically kind of aspects of that one mind. And see, this is the interesting thing, because people ask, why? Why is it arranged like this? And I would say it's because the one mind is evolving. The one mind enjoys this incredible process of kind of self-discovery. And we, as individual sentient beings, all participate in that kind of process of discovery, of, of learning and teaching these lessons that nudge us towards a deeper understanding of our very nature of existence and why we're here and what that purpose is. And again, I think our human minds, uh, even in this extraordinary state of traversing the veil, uh, we we can glimpse so much, and yet you can't bring it all back here. Uh, and I think it nudges us and helps lead us towards this deeper understanding that is very positive 
uh, for human development and, and for the whole ecology of Earth, because humanity, Homo sapiens, now has this dominant role in determining whether other species can live or die. And there actually are millions of species threatened with extinction due to human activity. So it's high time that humanity wake up to uh, a, a deeper sense of purpose and, and reality and get away from this insane egotistical greed that is driving us uh, to destruction. I mean, the, the corporate greed involved in the energy industry with uh, our addiction to fossil fuels, all these things, toxic pollution, plastics, every bit of that is due to corporate greed, a false sense of separation that can be alleviated by this deeper sense of connectedness and responsibility to take care of each other. And that's where the world needs to change right now. We've already gone way too far. You know, they keep saying, well, in five more years, we'll, you know, we'll be in deep trouble with climate change. Well, guess what? We're already there. The sooner we wake up and act like adults and get mature about this and quit being such silly little self-centered, egocentric uh, people like many of the autocratic leaders of this world, uh, we need to, you know, give power back to the people to take this world back over. And not in a sense of corporate greed and, and, and stealing resources from the world. You know, it, we have a finite world that only has finite resources, but we don't behave like that. We have an infinite growth economy and kind of market sense that's driving us to destruction. And it is time to reverse that now. The science of consciousness, especially around near death experiences and the notion of helping others and kindness, compassion, taking care of this world is the remedy that will help all of us come into a much healthier, happier, and more harmonious existence. Hmm. You believe we can do that? I'm very optimistic, but that optimism absolutely uh, involves a shift, an awakening uh, along the lines of exactly what I'm pointing to. Because if, if we don't do that, if we continue with the status quo, with the corporate greed and ignoring all the signs and beating up on each other, letting war go on, uh, political polarization, you know, beating the drum of hatred and division, uh, it's going to lead to our destruction. And sadly, very sadly, uh, millions of other species are going to get sucked down the drain with us through our own inept, uh, kind of incompetent, uh, immature uh, approach to uh, finding out who we are and living our best lives. But how do we deal with that? I mean, so many people are profiting with the world the way it is. Um, those people are not just going to stop and allow spiritual evolution to happen. Well, I mean, in terms of climate change, you can pretend, you know, that the status quo is just fine. Mm -hmm. But every year, every report, uh, you know, from climate groups, et cetera, is much worse than the last report. And it's, it shows our ignorance. We are horribly ignorant about all this and just stumbling over the abyss right now like a bunch of uh, lemmings, a, a bunch of mindless idiots. It is time to wake up. And I think many, especially a lot of my hope for the future is because the younger generation, uh, you know, I'm embarrassed what my generation has done. When I, I look at our, too, our Senate, when I look at our GOP Senate in the U.S., a bunch of climate deniers, I mean, they all need to go back to kindergarten and start over again. Come on, people. Let's wake up to this. But, you know, Mother Nature, 
uh, she's not going to just let us get away with that. It's not as if you can keep going and questioning, hmm, is climate change real? No, the droughts will get worse. The fires will get worse. The floods will get worse. The superstorms worse. And it can get much, much worse than it is right now. Uh, we've seen nothing yet. And it can get disastrous with a, a you know, a few, uh, few more percentage points of CO2 in the atmosphere. And it's all just going to tumble down around our heads. The uh, ag agrarian agriculture, uh, all of this stuff is going to collapse. In fact, if we lose bees and insects, which are already in sharp decline, uh, within four years, all of our agriculture will become grinding to a halt. So we are in deep trouble already. And thank God the younger generation is paying attention to this. Hopefully they will come out and vote, vote all those old fossils out of the Congress, out of Senate, get rid of them. And, of course, uh, when I say fossil, uh, uh, I mean anyone in politics who doesn't support uh, a sustainable energy platform and uh, moving forward with very sustainable practices for construction, for farming, uh, energy, uh, transportation. Every bit of this needs to be completely overhauled. And we can do it. Mm -hmm. People do have the solutions. But all of us need to chip in. And we need to make sure that any politician... Uh, you know, any company where the CEO is supporting that same madness of non-sustainable abuse of the earth, of uh, don't buy from those companies and make sure we vote out those politicians who have such a, a anti-human, anti-world viewpoints as to continue pushing for this greedy, uh, unsustainable uh, kind of pathway forward of burning fossil fuels, burning a biomass, et cetera, get them out of power because they're destroying your future. Hmm. And you say voted out the old fossils. I thought you just meant get rid of these old guys that don't know what they're doing. That's what I mean. And put some younger people in there. You know? Absolutely. Let's get, let's, let's, get some, let's get some fresh ideas, something we need. new. Let's give our world or country back to the people that are going to need it or use it. Well, I agree. Term limits, absolutely. Term limits in uh, the Supreme Court, term limits in, in Congress, Senate. We need to get rid of people who are no longer serving the higher good. And that's exactly what happens in many of these old fossil cases. So get rid of them. Let's get the young folks voted in. And absolutely, to all the young listeners, get out and vote. Your vote is absolutely essential, especially now. Our whole society, uh, our view of of, of of, of life, at least in, in, uh, in the United States, is up for grabs in November. It's a, a battle for the soul of this very country. And in many ways, because of that country's leadership position in the world, the soul of the world. So it's a responsibility of all of us uh, mm -hmm. to get uh, those powers that try to foster this madness of infinite economic growth of, you know, we got to get rid of them, vote them out. Yeah, I mean... I don't know. I voted once, I think when I was 18. And then I was disappointed, you know, everything afterwards. So I stopped voting. And, and I started to consider myself more of a, a primitive anarchist about going back to community type of living and primitive living and living with the earth and almost not eliminating civilization, but rearranging civilization in a way where we have to depend on each other rather than depending on these massive companies and things like that. However, I think now this election might be 
the second time I vote. <laughs> well, I sure hope you vote, Gary, because the the and I the also have a problem with the electoral college too. Well, I do too. I, I mean, from my point of view, I mean, when you look back on the recent past, I think the Republican Party has only actually won one out of the last seven presidential elections by popular vote. And, and you know, I voted Republican back in olden days. I certainly could not possibly do that today. The whole party's been completely decimated. Mm. Um, and I do believe that we, we need a conservative wing of party. But I also realize that the answers lie in the center. The answers are not on the left. The right. answers are not on the right. The answers lie in the center. Yeah. And voting is absolutely critical. In fact, if you hate the voting process and you hate the Electoral College and all that, it's even more important that you get out and vote because the votes are the only thing that at the end of the day will lead us towards the will of the people. But it does not do that if many of the people, like 80 million Americans, I think, in the last election, did not come out to vote. Uh, you know, voting is absolutely cr critical to getting the world of your choice. Even if you don't believe that uh, voting and elections are fair, we've got to hang on as hard as we can to democracy right now because it is under deep threat uh, from some of these ne'er-do-wells who are trying to steal it all from you. And uh, that's exactly, unfortunately, what the Republican Party has turned into. One of the things that I noticed, like I, I grew up in New Jersey and I've lived here most all my life, and then I moved to Alabama for five years. And now I'm back in New Jersey. The one thing also I noticed about voting too is here in New Jersey, the voting booths are in schools, firehouses, public places. Down there, the voting booths are in the churches, and the churches oh. don't really spend a lot of time talking about God because I've been to those churches. I had a job where I, my job was to drive people to church. They spend that hour every Sunday telling people who to vote for. Oh. <laughs> is, is, isn't that a breach of religion and, and state? That is a, a complete violation of any kind of principle of separation of religion and state. And I think it's absolutely crucial in the current era to keep religion and state separate. Um, and, uh, Anyway, I mean, we here in Virginia, it turns out our voting place is either a fire station or a church. So I guess we're kind of a hybrid model here. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and it brings up the whole issue of religion uh, and spirituality. They're not necessarily the not same thing. And to the, to the extent that a religion fully supports oneness, love, kindness, compassion, mercy— in a completely all-inclusive fashion, then it has alignment with a mm -hmm. deep lessons of spirituality and the modern science of consciousness. But as soon as a religious institution starts to be separatist, exclusive, uh, start being conflictual, and let's fight the other side because they're wrong, we're right, that religion has completely lost its way and its mind and is no longer of any value to anybody and needs to be completely rejected. Uh, that's my little opinion, but uh, I think that spirituality is a very important concept that unites us, brings us together, and aligns with some of the deepest knowledge of this emerging science of consciousness studies. And that is not the case for some religions and ideologies, especially those that harp on polarization, separation, exclusivity, 
uh, all of that. They have completely lost their minds and their way and really need to be completely rejected by all of us. Are you under the belief system where if enough people change how they think that it will affect the other people and help them automatically change because we're changing the oneness as a whole? Yes, I'm absolutely of that mindset. And this is why Karen and I are such big proponents of meditation, because I believe people can do a world of good spending, you know, 20 minutes a day in meditation, going into mind, uh, putting that little ego voice into timeout, because the ego only misleads you and leads you into addictions and other stupid endpoints. Uh, but the higher self, the higher soul can help you come into much uh, more healing. And uh, I, I remember a study long ago. I don't remember the, the source or uh, details, but I think it was out of Fairfield, Iowa. And I think it showed that when uh, when a population reached about 3% of the group meditating on a regular basis, that you had a major turnaround in things like crime and violence in, in that society. So I think the, the indicators are there. Yeah to show us that when a certain small segment of the society are really focused on bringing peace and oneness and kind of overlap of experience, and we're all in this together, bringing that into the mental space of their environment, it can tend to help heal the, the community at large. And I, I, I think that's important. And that's one of the things when I checked out your site, that you have a, a 30-day free meditation course that you only got to do is subscribe to it. Well, I highly recommend people do that. It's one of the many channels that Karen and I have made available, but certainly it's one that's uh, garnered tremendous uh, response and uh, appreciation from the world. I, I don't know the numbers right now, but I think more than uh, 10,000 people have taken that 33-day journey. Uh, and it, it's there, right, at ebonalexander.com. A little banner wiggles in your face as soon as you come to my mm -hmm. welcome page. Join the 33-day journey. It's free. It's a, an email drip campaign over 33 days. And it was actually developed as a companion workbook to go with our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. Uh, and this companion workbook of uh, each day addresses one of the major of 33 topics uh, covered in the book each day. And we make a little statement there. And then the best thing about it is it's created a global community. These over 10,000 people, many of them have left their comments. They've helped each other at each one of those 33 days. So that makes the exploration even more important. It's being able to see our lesson for the day, get to the concept. Often they're bundled with some kind of a meditation, uh, and that includes some sacred acoustics, uh, meditations available, things like that. Um, and so 33-day journey is a very important conduit, also highly recommended. When uh, we went into pandemic lockdown, my uh, partner, Karen, had a brilliant idea. She knew that normally we would have continued going to meetings and encountering our friends and colleagues, scientists involved in consciousness studies with global renown, other experiencers. And for every two weeks during most of the pandemic, Karen and I would interview one of those people. Those interviews are all available for free um, at innersanctumcenter.com. And I would highly recommend people go to that site and start looking at those interviews. You will find a tremendous uh, uh, breadth of support for a lot of what I've said in this conversation, uh, of showing that the scientific community is on board with this. This is the direction we're headed in. Uh, you can learn a lot more about other groups like Scientific and Medical Network, like Galileo Commission. Um, these are all groups that uh, I work with as a scientist and fully support, and they support my work. 
so it really is about uh, uh, sharing these resources as broadly and widely as, as possible to help everyone wake up. Just like that old saying, all politics is local. Mm-hmm. Well, all evolution of consciousness throughout the universe is nothing more than individual sentient beings coming into a deeper understanding of the meaning and purpose and connectedness of their own uh, existence. So every person's focus on their consciousness and meditation is almost as important, is as important, if not more important, than voting. Well, I'd I'd say please vote too. <laughs> well, yeah, but the voting, kind of- <laughs> let voting go. You're going to leave it to the people who uh, uh, probably are not going to steer the world in the right direction. Mm. Uh, so yes, let's vote too, and let's meditate. Uh, and of course, the reality is, as I came to realize in my journey, the biggest power and message of NDEs is not what happens when I die, but the biggest message is how do I live this life today with every choice and decision I make about seeing myself and interacting with my fellow beings. That is all greatly informed with this kind of higher knowledge of consciousness. Mm -hmm. That's the powerful lesson out of NDEs, not what happens when I die, but how do I live this life? And the lesson that NDEs will teach you is live it with unconditional love, compassion, kindness, forgiveness, mercy, never forget gratitude, uh, you know, and you will come into a much healthier, more harmonious version of self as you kind of assimilate this role and come to a deeper understanding of meaning and purpose in your own life. Right. I mean, this podcast was a result of my experience. I was, I was just like, left, I don't know, couldn't explain it, so... I said, well, congratulations. Let me start a podcast to see if I can find out people who can explain this to me. <laughs> well, thank you for what you are doing, because that is playing a huge role in, in the, the very purpose we're talking about here, to help uh, guide this world into a kinder, gentler, and more harmonious pathway that'll have uh, plenty of prosperity for all. There is abundance, but we need to learn how to live within a sustainable world and also be sure to take care of each other. We are here ultimately to care for all of our fellow beings. Yeah. Wow. Well, this was a fantastic interview. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Well, Gary, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for what you do. Very you. important to get this out to the world, and I appreciate it. You have gratitude from the bottom of my heart. And I'll post the links of all the resources that you've mentioned during this episode in the notes so my listeners can check them out. And I'll also put a link to your website, you know, and your book in there as well. And uh, it has been a pleasure and honor to talk to you today. Well, thank you so much, uh, Gary. It's great talking with you, too. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again someday. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you. You, too. Have a good day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book, Enlightenment Guaranteed, 
It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. If you loved what you listened to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Recording stopped.